First he went to his father and said, Father, I want to go to America with Marissa. No, you have to stay with the family. So he decided his friend and he were going to take and kidnap my mother. <laughs> no, seriously. And they were going to take her out in the desert and she would be shamed. He wasn't going to do anything to her, but she would be shamed and they'd have to get married. Hello everyone, it's Adessa. Welcome to episode 65 of the Assyrian Podcast. Today I am so excited to have you join me as we go back into time with Dr. Ray Georges and Gary Daniels. Ray was born in the midst of the Great Depression in 1931 in Chicago, Illinois. His cousin, Gary Daniels, was born in 1951 and together they retell the story of their family. In this episode, we learn about Ray's mother, Maressa Urshan Daniels, who was approached by Columbia Records in 1929 and is one of the first Assyrians to ever produce a record. You'll also hear about the Assyrian and Armenian genocide that hit the Ormia region in 1918, which forced Ray and Gary's family to flee, and what they had to endure along the way before finally settling in the U.S. in 1920. You'll also hear about the sweetest love story between Marissa and Ray's dad, Paul, and what life was like for Ray and Gary being born and growing up in the U.S. Stories like the one you'll hear remind me of the bravery, ingenuity, and resilience of Assyrians throughout our history and how thankful I am to be here and still be able to call myself an Assyrian. Now, there's a few names in this episode that will be important to pay attention to. Marissa, who is Ray's mother, had a half-brother named Abraham. Abraham married a girl named Sophie. You'll be hearing those names thrown out, so just pay close attention. Lastly, support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Calagrakis and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Calagrakis. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at injuryrights.com or 847 982 and without further ado, I'm thrilled to introduce you to Ray and Gary. All right, starting over, take two. This is Gary Daniels speaking. Of the beginning, as far as I can recall it, my great-grandmother, Rachel Mushi, had remarried Yedgar Urshan. From her first marriage, she had a son named Abraham, who was my grandfather. Uh, from her marriage to Yedgar Urshan, she had a daughter named Marissa, and also Jonathan. Do you uh, know what year Rachel was born? Not exactly. I know Abe was born, and I'm, I might be off a couple years, I want to say 1886. Okay. So Abe and Jonathan and Marissa then were half-brother and Dr. Georges, Marissa is your mother. Yeah, Marissa is my mother. She'll always be my mother. And they were living in Abajalu. And, and Abajalu is where? In Urmia. In Urmia. And they were well off financially. She had these cousins that they read. They, like, for instance, her father, Yedgar, was a builder in mm-hmm. construction. Unfortunately for my mother, when she was two years old, because her mother told her this story, he was working on a roof and he fell off and killed himself. So 
she was raised by her mother. Her mother was everything to her. And the cousins also, they, they helped a lot. And they had vineyards and they had property. They had all kinds of good things going. And then when 1918 came and that jihad occurred and the Assyrians had to take flight, my mother's mother, my grandmother, had three mules and she loaded them up with their belongings and, and then included included the Bible. There was a big ponderous Bible which had all the records, all the records going, I, I, I don't know how far back. Was it in the Assyrian language? Yeah, yeah. And so as they were going along, it was a very hard trip for them. To, they were going to go to Bakuba and on the road, one by one, the, monk, the donkeys died. And at first, you know, my mother was seated on one and my grandmother was seated on the other. So when that happened, my grandmother decided she would walk and bring the other two donkeys because the, the one donkey was carrying quite a load now with the Bible and all their belongings, and he died. And so they threw everything away. She continued this trip with my mother on the back of this donkey, and she would not let my mother get out and walk because my mother had had rheumatic fever when she was young, and also my grandmother knew that her son had died in, in, the, in the United States because the rheumatic heart couldn't handle the hard job that he was doing. He dropped dead right on while he was trying to move a portable stage. And, and uh, he hadn't gone to the U.S. He well was before in, no, the, yeah, well before the war. The genocide. And, yeah, he was here, and Abby was here. Abraham that, that uh, Gary's talking about, my mother's half-brother. So they traveled along, and then when they got to the outskirts of Ermia, there was a river there, and my mother, grandmother forced my mother to have her hair washed in this cold, cold stream. And my mother just was freezing, and she said, why did you do this? She said, because if I don't do that, the British will think you're lousy, and they'll cut your hair off. So she did. So when they got to the... Sophie was six years older. She was married to Abraham, and she was a nurse's assistant helping the uh, Indian doctors that were there because the British occupied Iraq at that time, including, including Bakuba. And so my mother was immediately sent to the hospital, and then when my mother came out, Sophie came up to her. Now, Sophie was six years old. My, my mother was 12. She was born on the 20th of July in uh, 1906. Mm -hmm. And when she came out, Sophie said, Marissa, your mother died. And here my mother comes from an affluent surrounding, and now she's an orphan in a strange town with no one except Sophie. But my father saw her, and my father he had, on his trip, his uncle, a sniper got his uncle. And this is interesting. My dad was a little guy. And my father said, you know, he said to me, son, my father was a giant. He said, my uncle was a big giant. I have seen pictures of them. These guys were big. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, the, the uncle could only go to Russia to get shoes and hats. His feet were so big. And he said, but my mother was a shrimp. And she, he said, and I'm a shrimp. And he said, and you and your brother are shrimps. 
compared to his, his, his uncle. Well, his uncle got hit by a sniper and he died on the trip. And he this was another, making his way from from Gavilan to Bakuba camp. Yes, exactly right. And then there was another brother. My my grandmother made a terrible mistake when she got ready. She put these apron type clothing on and and she sewed them up and put food in inside so they'd have food. Guess what she forgot? Water. And there was no water, and it was hot. Anyhow, my father remembers that his brother was dying of thirst, and his, he was older, and he saw water. He ran, he jumped in it, he drank it, and the water was poisoned, and he died. So he lost two of these people. But when he got here, he had a mother, a father, and another brother. So he and had here family. you mean the U.S. And or no, in Bakuba no, camp? No, Bakuba. And they had a tent set up, and he would invite my mother. So my mother would go from tent to tent to tent, and so my mother was cared for. Now, this is going to sound ridiculous, but at age 13, my father fell hopelessly in love with my mother, and she reciprocated. So the story goes on what went on in Bakuba during the time they were there, they learned English because that's all the British would speak to them. And the other thing is they were so blackened from the sun that the British thought that they were that they weren't white. Mm -hmm. And well the boys, there was they they went swimming. There was water nearby and they stripped and you know there's their white body, you know, midsection and they said, My God, they're white. <laughs> They couldn't believe it, even though they were so dark. As time went by, the war ended, and Abby, Abraham, I always call him Abby, Abraham notified Sophie that it was time for them, they could come to America. He made, he sent the money, there was a certain amount of money, and he said, and bring Marissa. And so that was all set up, and, and, and Sophie's mother, was going to come too. How long were they in the camps for? Uh, nearly two years, you know, year and a half, nearly two years, because mm -hmm. I I know they arrived here in 1920, and Gary will tell you of what they ran into before they got here, and that took some time. My father was crushed, because he was, he was going to be 15 soon, so he, it wasn't July yet. He was going to be 15, and so he concocted this plan. Now this sounds ridiculous, but he concocted this plan and he enlisted a friend of one, his friend. And they were going to, he went to his first, first he went to his father and said, Father, I want to go to America with Marissa. No, you have to stay with the family. Oh. So he decided his friend and he were going to take and kidnap my mother. <laughs> no, seriously. And they were going to take her out in the desert and she would be shamed. He wasn't going to do anything to her, but she would be shamed and they'd have to get married. So, so my dad one way or like, another, they were going yeah, to get married. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> she, she had to marry him, so she'd have to stay with him or he'd have to go with her. So as he came back, he was all set, and his father called him over and he said, you know, Bruna, you're going to America. And my father said, why? You said I couldn't go. I said, yes, but I found out that when you turn 15, the British will draft you into their army. He said they draft their own people at age 17, but the colonials they drafted 15. 
He says, I don't want you serving in the British Army. So that's how my dad was able to come over with my mother. There was a problem here. The problem was that Sophie's mother was not my mother's blood relative. Mm -hmm. And so she would not be admitted into the United States. That's how strict they were in those days. So they decided to name my mother Daniels because Daniels then, that would mean Sophie's mother was my mother's mother. So they would all be able to be admitted into the United States. So they had this whole story all worked out and they got away with it. Whereas before that, your mother's maiden name was Urshan? Yeah. Okay. So she was an Urshan. Okay. Yeah. And uh, she was proud of it, you know. And uh, sometimes she went by Yedgar because you know how Assyrians either honor their their father's yeah. first name. And so she, occasionally you hear Yedgar thrown in the family. And Jonathan, her brother, was Jonathan Yedgar Urshan. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that my mother was Marissa Urshan Yedgar. And Yedgar, are I mean, you saying Yadgar? Is huh? that how Yedgar? Y A D E G A R? We, yeah, oh, something okay. like that. Yedgar. So what happened then? They got on the boat, and they were going to come over, and but they were diverted through the Suez Canal to India, and they wound up in Bombay. And my father was there. You know, he was sort of following Marissa everywhere she went. And when they were in Bombay, I don't know how long they were in Bombay. Do you know how long they were in Bombay? I want to say a couple of weeks, maybe a month. I'm really not, really not sure. Okay. And was that a part of the route, or did they have to stop there? No, I, I don't know why they didn't go directly to France. They were supposed to go to France. So while they were there, the British split my mother and father up. My mother and her family came over on a boat after she and my father split up in Bombay. Why did they split them up? The British decided who would go where they would go and on what boat they would go. Mm. In, in other words, it was up to the British. Mm. And they split them up because my father wasn't. A part of their family. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was part of the family. So my mom went to Canada. She do you know where in she, Canada? Do you I know think where? they landed in Quebec. Quebec? Oh, okay. From okay. Liverpool. Okay. They took the But before over. they did that, before they did that, they went to France. And, and, Mar and, then from, and from France, they went to England. Mm -hmm. And so, as I said, my mother wound up in, all right, she wound up in Quebec. And my father, for some reason, wound up in Detroit. And they got, they met. They, How did they, they find each I, other? I don't know. That story was never told to me. Oh, my goodness. Then, from there, they went to Chicago. Mm -hmm. from Detroit and my dad they lived someplace in Chicago on Chicago Avenue when my father was picked up by his uncle Oshana George. So they already had family here. Yeah uncle Oshana Georges who lived on Newport Avenue in Chicago and my mother went with Sophie and Uncle Abe and that's where that ends. Now maybe uh, Gary should tell you about the things that they encountered on the trip through the Suez Canal, because it's, it's pretty exciting. And then I'll continue from there. Sure. When they left the Bakuba refugee camp, Sophie's husband, Abe, had arranged that. He had found uh, through the churches here in Chicago, was able to find, I believe it was Dr. McDowell, 
or Reverend McDowell that was in the camp anyway, it was through uh, the church organizations that he was able to find where Sophie was oh, okay. and then arrange transport from the camp uh, eventually to the U.S. As Ray was saying, they, they left there, left Baghdad, made it to Bombay, and then when they left Bombay, and this is in the recording that uh, she made. It's Sophie made. Yeah. Right. Uh, she relates getting on the ship and one of the things I've been trying to do is find out the name of the ship. And from her description, it sounds like it has four funnels and that it was a, uh, a ship that had been captured from the Germans, that it had been a Kaiser ship. She does recount <clears throat> the part of the voyage they were, I believe, entering the Red Sea. And uh, the ship contained mostly British troops coming home and a few refugees. And she indicates that there were some German saboteurs on board and somehow disabled the ship so that they had to evacuate and boats, I guess they were near the shore. Boats would come from the shore, take them off. They ended up in another refugee camp in Cairo and it sounded like maybe about a month, and I believe it was the same refugee camp that uh, a, a lot of survivors from the uh, the Musada that were saved from there had ended up. What's, uh, what's Musada? Well, there's a novel based on the actual situation called uh, The 40 Days of Musada, and it's basically a, a group of Armenians that had resisted the Turks, mm. and they were on a mountain, and... Uh, Towards the end, they were actually saved, I believe, by the French sent some ships, and they were able to escape under the ships and ended up in Cairo. Oh. So from there, they, I don't know if it was the same ship, but they ended up in Marseille through France. They spent some time in Paris, uh, ended up in England, and departed uh, Liverpool on the Melita steamship. I made it to Quebec, and then from there, I'm not sure what mode of transportation they, they mm -hmm. used, but they entered the U.S. through Detroit. Mm -hmm. So not everyone entered in through Ellis Island during those That's right. times. That's okay. right. And then once they were in Detroit, I believe they just took a train into Chicago. And, and see, that's how my folks reunited. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and it was thanks to the contacts from the missionaries that were in right. Bakuba camp that right. were then able to connect them. Amazing. And to think that time when there was no technology or anything, <laughs> my goodness. As she recounts, they made it into Union Station and uh, took a cab to, I believe it was 141 West Chicago, where Abraham, who had no idea that they were coming, I think she said it was like one in the morning, they knocked at his door. <laughs> he opens it. <laughs> oh my goodness. And there they all are. Yeah. So when, when Marissa came, she came with Sophie and... Sophie's mother. And Sophie's mother. Yeah. And when... And, and yeah. Okay. And then when your father came, he came with his parents? His, just parents, his parents died in the old country. I see. They, they never came here. And so was he alone? He, was, he came here alone, but once he reunited with my mother, then he was with someone. And then he did have that... He had that uncle. And once here, did they immediately marry? No. Now this is you have to understand. This is 1920 when they arrived. That's that's an important date. 
My mother was 14 and my dad wow. was 15. They didn't marry. But my dad was hanging around and Abraham didn't want him hanging around. He wanted Marissa to marry somebody with some means, you know, mm -hmm. own a grocery store or something, mm -hmm. you know. And my mother and my father, they were, they were infatuated with each other. So what happened was with, with my father on Newport Avenue in Chicago and with Amy, my mother with Abraham, uh, they weren't close. You, you know, they, they couldn't see each other much, but my father would always find a way to get there and he was kind of like a pest. Oh, by the way, Abraham wasted no time at all. Within a year, Sophie had her first child, because of Grace. Grace was born, and that's the picture of that baby there. In 19, 1921, Gracie was born. So I said to Sophie, I said, Sophie, what did you do from 1920 until 1930? And she looked at me and she said, picnic. That's all she said to me, picnic. Hmm. And I want to tell you, we Assyrians used to have picnics in the forest reserve that you cannot believe. What did they used oh, to be like? The dancing and the banjo playing and oh my God, and the, and the cooking. And that went on until one of our Syrian boys was murdered. What happened was we had some, uh, some, some kind of gang that would come around. They, they, they were kind of interested in our, in our girls. And this guy said, you know, leave our girls alone. They got in a fight and he got knifed and he got killed. And so my By father, another Assyrian or no, a no, non-Assyrian? Was, he, he was, he, I think he was some kind of Spanish or something. My father said, that's it, no more picnics here. Wow. So that was the end of it. And uh, how did they make a life for themselves Okay. Here? What okay, was the transition okay. like for them? Now we come to a rather interesting part of the story. My mother always had a wonderful singing voice. She never had it trained but she could sing. Now, if you listen to recordings that she made later, the recordings are so bad, and you know, we're not talking about high fidelity, but my mother would sing to me all the time. But before I was born, my mother was coerced by Abraham, because this is the way it's done in the old country, I guess, was coerced to marry this guy named Saul Daniels. And Saul Daniels lived with them. And my mother was 16 years old, and she was made to lie and say she was 18 years old, you know, because to get the marriage license. And in, in my mother's own words, she said, I hated that man. Oh. She said, So it was arranged. It was arranged. She couldn't stand this man because my mother never got pregnant. And then my father, you have to be careful with my father. My father, he said, when I say son of a bee, that means fight. And if anybody accosted my mother, he would have killed him. Mm. But my father was helpless because he was the only protection that my mother had. And if Saul had abused her and he, he would have beat her black and blue, he would have gone to jail. Then mm. who would be there for Marissa? So he just put up with this. He put up with this. Finally, Abraham was out of work, and this uh, Saul Daniels was out of work. He was an auto mechanic. My mother was approached by Columbia Records to do 12 Middle Eastern songs. 
And how was she approached by them? How did they I, even hear about you know, her? You know, I ought to tell you, I even had the contract once, what? and I've lost it. I've lost the contract. And she so did... Columbia Records, Col- the famous Columbia Records yes, that everyone Columbia knows, Records. had approached your mother yes, yes. to produce Middle Eastern songs that were in Assyrian. Majority were in Assyrian, yeah, right? Yeah, but she... So she recorded these. Everybody was out of work. So from 29 to 30, until she finally got divorced from this guy, she supported everybody. It was her money. What was divorce like back then? Any Assyrian will know this word, Aiba. Mm-hmm. You don't divorce your husband. Mm-hmm. So she, she really, she had guts to do this. And so she, she divorced and the, and, and she got the divorce based on cruelty because he used to beat her. And, and like I say, my dad was seething, but he couldn't do anything. He wouldn't do anything. Uh, the, ju- the judge said, you're entitled to alimony. She said, no. He said, but you're entitled to this money every month. No, I don't want anything to do with this man. Nothing. And then they had me. <laughs> So she divorced him, and then did they immediately, did she immediately marry your father? Immediately left and went to where my father was living. And and that's when my cousins, that, you know, these are my cousins, and they met and they said, she was such a wonderful woman, you know, and then my mother and father disappeared. They just went off on their own. And and then I was born. What do you mean by that? They didn't visit with his family anymore because, well, Sharon, that was the mother. Of she who? didn't, of, of, she was Ushana Gewergis' wife. She, you oh, this was, um, this, this was, was your father's uncle. Yeah. Okay. She didn't, she had no respect for anybody that wasn't her blood relative. Uh, okay. You know, that old Assyrian yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And so, so, I mean, life for my mother would have been miserable, mm-hmm. absolutely miserable. So they left, and they, and they cut off contact. And I don't know where they lived. I lost them. Mm-hmm. And that is, I lost the information. I think Dorothy knew, but Dorothy is deceased now, and she couldn't remember. So anyhow, then when I was born, Dad tells an interesting story. He said, you were born in 1931. Everybody thinks the depression was bad in 29. He said, but it's 31 is when it was really bad. And he said, we were so poor. Your mother nursed you. She hadn't nursed you for a year. You'd have died because there was no food. You know, there were no, there was no welfare at that time. And in the first year of my life, they moved 10 times. They would move into an apartment couldn't pay the rent and get evicted and move into another one and get evicted. But they just kept plugging along. And then finally, he said, because what happened was when I was born, his boss called him in. My dad was a phenomenal painter and decorator, but the boss called him in. His boss happened to run this uh, one of the big hotels in Chicago. He was, he, he was working in a restaurant as a busboy. Nobody was hiring painters. So my dad was working 70 hours a week for $10 a week, and they took that away from him. And you know, he said... Do you recall which hotel that was? I like to say the Morrison. Is it still in existence today? I, did they tear the Morrison down finally? I don't know. I mean, I remember that years ago, but 
I forgot. My recent memory, I don't. I don't I recall ever seeing the bio. Then again, I'm not sure. I where forgot. That would be. I forgot okay. what hotel. But the point is, <laughs> their dresser, yeah. their their dresser, was thrown out by them. My brother says he thinks he says I think Papa stole it, but I don't think he did. And my somehow my father got it home, and when they were in their apartments, that dresser and that dresser has been refinished, and my son Joe has it in his bedroom. Oh my goodness. Yeah, from way back then. <laughs> Papa would say to me, when you were born, I was fired, and when your brother was born, I was making money. What year were you born? I was born in 19, April 30th, 1931. 1931. And my brother was born on the 18th of January in 1936. <clears throat> so it was a, see, people don't understand. What year did the depression oh, end? Yeah. It ended in World War II, 1941. 41. Yeah. And what happened was that the Depression was improving. It was more of a monstrous recession. And then something the politicians did, I don't know what it was, but caused the Depression to come back in 1937. And my folks found themselves in poverty again because nobody would hire anybody. And if you've ever seen pictures of the Depression, you've got men, talented people walking, willing to work for a dollar a day. Plumbers, painters, bricklayers, dollar a day. Is that the day. way your parents described it? My father was painter and decorator, but he never, he, he, he didn't get a job until the war started and he was painting again. That, that's how we come up to the present time. And what year was it that Columbia had approached your mother? 20, it had to be 29 because 20. she recorded them and they issued them as she recorded them. So she was getting work all through 30. Hmm. And, and it had to end before she got the divorce. I don't know when you got the date on that divorce. I think 29 is right. I was just looking at something on the web and it had the date 1929. Hmm. Was she writing her own lyrics? You know, no, she, was... she had them all memorized. Oh, so these, these are all these were Syrian songs. Oh, are these like like folklore songs? No, like Simar Zerdi. Everybody knows that song. Natila oh, Jeldi. I I've lost my Assyrian. I've lost it, and I and I really regret that. But. That's the story of my mother. Now you have to understand, why did she name me Ramon? Yeah, why did she? Why did she name me? My mother was one of the most romantic people I've ever known. And when she was the 20s, it was Rudolf Valentino, the silent lover of, you know, everybody knew him. And then he died. But then Ramon Navarro came along, and he was the first love, you know, heartthrob and, and talking pictures. So she named me, he's, he was, you know, he was Spanish and she named me after him because it was romantic. <laughs> See, I figured Ramon was Ramon, like Ramon the Well, that's Assyrian what they name. call me. Yeah. But, but, but this, this is funny. Assyrians are funny people because what happened was Ramon Navarro was in a movie about the, the, the war that was going on before the Germans attacked. The Germans were helping, you know, the... Uh, Spanish, you know, the dictatorship at that time. And this was a picture about it, and the hero was, and he gets blinded at the end, but he, 
he still survives. His name was Chico. Guess what my nickname was for the first five years of my life? Chico? Chico. <laughs> and Assyrians didn't call me Chico, they called me Chico. And I would go up to my mother and I'd say, why is she calling me Chico? I'm Chico. <laughs> but I have a story that I have to tell. My mother, she, she would sing to me all the time. And we lived on a, on, a, on a street called Elaine Place, and the living room faced east toward the lake, and the kitchen faced west. And my mother would wait. My dad would go out to get cigarettes. I think sometimes he'd go out to, to the tavern and get a little shot too, but he, he's going out to get cigarettes. And my mom used to love to have me in her lap, and she would sing to me. and. She would never turn any lights on. Her favorite time was twilight. And she'd watch the sun going down in the west until it was dark. Well, she sang this one time. I remember this. People were two and a half. And she sang, let me call you sweetheart. Let me call you sweetheart. I'm in love with Let me hear. I started crying. I mean, I was sobbing. I was so touched. And so, you know, I'm rubbing my eyes and everything else. And then my father walks in. And I said, what's the matter with him? Shidanali? You know, I'm like, is he crazy? And she said, no, he fell down and hurt himself. She wouldn't tell him that. She sang me into tears. <laughs> That's the kind of mother I had. I want to ask questions more about your mother and her singing, but before I get into that, is there anything that you want to fill in from what he's been saying over this last stretch? Um, Any missing pieces? Uh, but the only thing I can say is that I can say is that the Daniels, well, they changed the name from Moshi to Daniels, back to Daniels, because Gracie and Dorothy, the two girls that Abraham's daughters, they were, they were teased terribly in, in, in grade school. Moshi, 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 and mm. they'd come home crying, so they changed their name back to Daniels. Rachel's first husband, his name was Moshi Daniels. Mm -hmm. And when they had their son Abraham. Apparently, the the naming convention was to give the child the first name. the first name, and then the, the last name would actually be the first name of the father or the grandfather. Yeah. So instead of being Abraham Daniels, it was Abraham Mushi. Mm -hmm. So I mean, when you go do research, you'll see Abraham Mushi. Uh, that's on his draft card and mm -hmm. passport and all that. And as you indicated, uh, once they got here and Abraham's daughters, Grace and, and uh, Dorothy, wanted the name changed because of the teasing they got. They did. So he changed it to Daniels. So that's how the Daniels comes into it. So I guess technically I would be Gary Mushi. Yeah. And I would be single because my wife says she would not be a Mushi. <laughs> or she would keep her married name. Now... The Daniels family and the Georges family, through my mother, were so close. 
As a matter of fact, Gracie and Dorothy were like, they were like my mother's daughters. Bobby was born, born six months after I was born. Gracie and Dorothy's brother, Bobby Daniels. So I, I want to go back to your mother and the time that Columbia Records had approached her. You had mentioned that she had a voice on her. She'd always sing. So did she grow up in a family of musicians, or was she the only she one the of one. the family? She was the one. Because she was the only girl. Everybody else, male. Mm-hmm. And, her, and a lot of them became evangelical preachers. Uh, Andrew Urshan was known all over the United States, especially in California. Boy, did he get rich. He came over, and his first baptism was done in Lake Michigan. He oh. baptized people in that freezing Lake Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> and they all wound up in California, I guess, and they had their churches there. And these very wealthy women would die and leave everything to them. Mm. You know, it was... And my mother was honored by these people because she was the only girl. Mm -hmm. Did she ever tell you what it was like <coughs> to... I mean, to me, it's it's amazing that the first Assyrian to ever record, record something was a woman at that. I feel like that's unheard of, especially during that time. Everything was a lot more male-oriented. So oh, for yeah. her to be the first Assyrian at that a woman, a woman, like, yeah. that's incredible. That's incredible history. Did she ever talk that to you never, about what that meant to her? And you what? know, that never bothered. My mother never was upset about or fearful or had stage fright for singing hmm. because every time the Daniels would come over for Christmas dinner or something, and we'd be sitting around and dining, of course, Marissa had to sing, and then Raymond had to get the accordion out and play the accordion for everybody. I mean, it went on. Assyrians lived formally in the dining room, the kids were in the kitchen. And that went on for years. I mean, it never changed. It, mm -hmm. There was this, this... So there was always music in the house whenever people were gathered. Yeah, yeah. And, and my mom, church, for, for Christmas, she'd, have, she'd be in these, these Christmas plays, and she'd always have to sing. Do you remember what church your mom was a member of? Uh, this was the one on Alden Avenue and Halsted Street. It's been torn down. And, uh, oh, Sadok. Gosh, a Sadok. Maybe you might want to research him. Sure, but do you have like a, a Presbyterian church? Was it a Catholic? He was an historian. historian. Oh, Church of the East. Yeah, Church, church of, of the East. East. Okay. But then later, my mother became a Presbyterian. And I didn't realize there were so many Presbyterian Assyrians. Yeah. But a lot of it happened from now, the missionaries. Now, my father living next to the Russians, was raised as Russian Orthodox. Mm. Isn't that something? Mm -hmm. You know, my dad, can I tell a story about my dad? Please go ahead. My dad was 10, 11, and he could ride horses. And he loved the Arabians. And the Kazakhs had occupied the northern part of what was then, you know, Iraq. And they protected the Assyrians because they were Christians. And they supplied the Assyrians with munitions and ammunition. And the, and the, and the Persians didn't have a chance if they came against, because there would be wars between cities, you know, skirmishes. Well, my father would go, when the, he said, you know, son, he said, those Russians, you didn't know where the horse 
ended and the, and the man began because it was like one. He said they'd come up on these horses and they'd go to the tavern and start getting drunk. And they'd ask, and he'd say, can I watch your horse for you? Just like we used to do for the ball games. Mm. And he'd say, yes. And so my dad would take the horse out, wait till he had a couple, and he'd get on it. He'd ride that horse until that horse was darn near exhausted, sweating like crazy. Then he'd come back, he'd wash the horse, brush the horse, get the horse just spotless clean. And when the cousin finally came out drunk as a, he'd look, oh, my horse looks good. He tipped my father <laughs> with Russian cigarettes. That ended up costing my father his life later. And I'm telling you, he said, when they got on those horses as drunk as they were, they never fell off. Mm. Never fell off. But then, you know, when the Cossacks were called back with the Bolshevik Revolution, they were all, you know, they were white Russians. They were all killed. They were exterminated. Mm. And that's when they got bold in the Middle East. They got bold in the Middle East because then the, the Muslims came after the Christians. Mm. But they didn't dare when the Russians were protecting them. So you you'd mentioned that um, your mom would sing sometimes in the church. Always. When your mom would produce records, what would she sing about? I Can mean, you recall the lyrics? No, I, the only the one is that that read some hour. I don't okay. I don't remember. I'll let you hear a couple of them that I've got when you know when we're done. Mm -hmm. The the thing is, it doesn't do service to my mother's voice because the records were wrecked. They were so worn, they were so used. I, they were all big, tw and they were 12 inches. They weren't, you know, but that's 78 RPMs, so they all lasted, what they used to last, about 10 minutes, five, 10 minutes. And for one song, three, four, five No, minutes. no, no, she, she'd get a couple songs yeah. out of it. But that, that's basically it. Now, what was it like being the son of the first Assyrian oh, person to produce I didn't know that was important. And as a matter of fact, his father and I, when we would when we would be over for for whatever dinner everybody was over for, and my mother would start singing, we'd start laughing like like it was stupid, you know. We thought that was so silly. Oh. She's singing all the time, and we'd go in the kitchen, and I mean, we didn't appreciate what we had. I guess the only time I appreciated it was when I was two and a half years old. She made me cry, but uh, no, we were we were not impressed. Bobby and I were never impressed. We just took things for granted. And that was inside the house. What about for outside of the house? Like, what was your connection with like Assyrians at that time? Were you involved in the community? Was your mother? And My father... mother was president of the Assyrian Auxiliary mm -hmm. three times through the church. No, the oh, Assyrian, outside of it. Okay, Assyrian, it at that time, the Assyrian National Association. Okay. Uh, when McCarthy got in, they had to change it from National to Syrian American Association. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, Roosevelt wrote them a, 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 a wonderful letter appreciating what the Assyrians had done in World War II. He, he, was, he, was, he was genuine then. So she, the Assyrians would do that, and I don't know, I just, we just didn't, we thought that's the way it was always going to be. <clears throat> Many Assyrians went to war in World War II, and you read the book, what he went through. And you're that bronze star that's next to the Congressional Medal of Honor. That's the highest honor you can get. Yeah. So, and for those that are um, listening, way, he's referencing the book um, Dragons and yeah, Violence. By the way, he knew my mom and dad. Really? Yeah, because they lived in Chicago for a while. Oh. And and I talked to Sarah Benjamin about that. And I said, what were my mother? He, she said, they were royalty. 
they weren't royalty, but they were so honored by this by the Assyrians mm -hmm. because of my mother. Mm -hmm. I'd be walking down the street and I'd bump into an Assyrian. Brut my, you know, they want to know who am I? I because they know I was an Assyrian. I said, oh, Paul Georges, Paul Georges, who's who's Paul Georges? I said, you know, he's. My mother, Marissa. Marissa. <laughs> the eyes would open wide. So oh, all knew. of them looking at me with reverence. I didn't. I didn't understand what that was all about. You know, mother. What What were some things that you remember them saying when you were younger, aside from being in awe? That was it. Okay. That's all I really remember because we took it for granted. Mm -hmm. To you, you're just like, oh, it's not a big deal. I hear my mom listening all the time. Yeah, I hear it all the time. And my mother was a su super cook. And she was a super singer, and we thought all mothers were that way. And my mother was honored to be a professional housewife. Mm. Oh, that, I didn't tell you that story. I said, Mom, why did you quit singing? You were making money. She said, because the uh, manager was starting to try to make out with her. He, he really was. And she was, now that they were not under any restraint, if my dad found out, that manager would have lost his nose. And so she quit. Mm. That was it. Her professional life ended when I was born. No more. No more. No more. No more for money. And just, just, just think about it. In those days, an Assyrian woman never remarried unless her husband died. Mm -hmm. Never. Mm -hmm. And here my mother, she kind of broke the mold there. Mm -hmm. And you know what? She never told my brother Ralph and me about that. Never. And I said to Dorothy, I'm so proud of her. Tell me what life was like growing up for the both of you in Chicago. You go first. Gary, what year were you born? I was born in 1951. Yeah, what was Chicago like? Oh, heavenly. It was cold that day, from what <laughs> I was told. It was January. Yeah. For me growing up, you know, like most kids, had no concept of what was really going on in the world. Just wanted to see what the cartoons were on Saturday morning. But the family life, it seemed like we had a revolving door. Uh, relatives constantly coming oh. and going. The door was never locked. Just the doorbell would ring. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And... Um, Come up for chai kata. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, it got to the point, I really wanted to know who all these aunts and uncles were. And finally sat down and outlined and did a little family tree to see exactly, for instance, Ray here, I always refer to as Uncle Ray, mm. but we're really second cousins. Mm. And uh, growing up, uh, we just always had a, a constant flow of friends and family. How far away were you two from each other? Walking distance. distance. Oh, okay. Everybody and walked. at that time, everyone you could just go out and yeah. be like, see you later, Mom and Dad. I'll, everybody, I'll be home. Every, oh, yeah. everybody walked in Chicago, in our neighborhood. You walked to the grocery store. You walked to the clothing store. You walked to the butcher. You walked to the movie house. Everything was... Low. And who were your neighbors at that time, like uh, ethnicity-wise? Uh, well, when I was growing up, uh, we had gotten out of, of the... Like where you were, yeah. when I say you, I mean Ray, because it was really a different time period mm -hmm. when we were both 20, 20 years. Up. We still had, we were still relatively close 
but not as close as when Ray was growing up, when everyone was either in the same building or a block or two away. Mm. Things were starting to spread out. I spent a lot of time growing up in the Portage Park area, Irving and Central. Uh, a lot of some of the people we would visit still were maybe down a few miles away in, in the Wrigley area, mm. uh, Rogers Park area. So things were starting to spread out, and people were starting to move out of state. Yeah. And uh, you were getting the, the second and third generation growing up. It wasn't the same as the people that first came over mm. and uh, all tended to band together in a community to more or less help out each other. Mm -hmm. And I think as once families started to become more affluent, things started to spread out, people tended to go separate ways uh, where the jobs were or education-wise, and uh, which is fine to a point, but you know, I hear stories, for instance, uh, from what Ray is recounting and other peers from that time period of how things were how we all live in together, and we just don't have that mm. anymore. And mm. it's it's just a, a different time, different world. Like you say, we we would walk, mm -hmm. you know. And I, uh, even though there's a 20 year time span, when I was growing up in grade school, I would take a bus here, there, transfer. Yeah. And when my kids were that age, mm. I would never have them do that. You know, I'll drive them. Yeah, there right. And all that. Yeah. And. Uh, it's just, uh, it's unfortunate that, uh, you know, we've become that type of society, but that's that's the way of the world. You know, the thing that, that I, my, the 20 years earlier, was it was a different world. Because <clears throat> in Chicago at that time, don't forget, we were, we were growing up, I was 12, no, I was, I was 10 years old when World War II started. And in those four years, what happened was all the males were drafted, they were gone. And the streets in Chicago were so safe, you know. I, I'm sure they got a few of the rapists out and a few of the gangsters. And you went, women like you would walk down to Lincoln Park and if you wanted to, you could bring a blanket, you could fall asleep all night. And we used to, I'm telling you, we lived in the park, we swam, we did. There were three things every Chicago kid could do when I was growing up. One, you could really roller skate. You were good, and if you could roller skate, you could ice skate. You could swim, and you could ride a bike. And I mean ride a bike, no-handed, around corners, it didn't matter. Kids, kids got together, and they just, and then we used to have top season, and we used to have yo-yo season. We used to have all these different seasons where, I remember one time the police were coming after us because they thought we had, we, we, we did have baby guns, but we were not shooting the ducks. Somebody was shooting in the, in, the, in the bird sanctuary. And so we ran to our bush hut and we had it so camp, I, you cannot imagine how dense the park was. It's when these rapes and murders start happening and they cut everything down. Mm -hmm. We got into our bushes. The only thing we had to be careful, we're breathing. You know, and, and the cops are just like, where did those little bastards go? And they're whacking them. They're not in these bushes. Where are they? And they went away. And that's how, I mean, that's the kind of stuff we did. That's the mischief. We used to love to get chased by the police because what we would do is climb trees We'd be, at nighttime. You're not supposed to be here. We're up 
30 feet in the tree and where'd that damn kid go, you know? Wow. <laughs> and I mean, we just, we lived a life that we made exciting. Sounds like a ton of adventure. And by the way, the, the predominant of people in, in were Swedes around mm -hmm. us Assyrians. Mm -hmm. How did your Assyrian identity show up for the both of you, if at all, growing up? My, okay, go, you go first. Because mine did. Uh, I don't think it really, if it did show up, it really wasn't in a significant way. Because, uh, you know, for, for my father, he was, what, three quarters Assyrian, one quarter Armenian, and my mother was Irish, Danish, Swedish. So, uh, so did any of those like any of those ethnic identities stand out, or it just ended up being like a, I'm a, well, a mix of everything? I'd say more weight to the father's side, the Assyrian, mainly because uh, spent more time with the Assyrian relatives. Mm -hmm. But outside the family, uh, really nothing significant. Mm -hmm. No parties or anything like that. Any Assyrian parties or there was probably the only thing is what Ray had mentioned the Assyrian picnics. I remember as a kid going to a couple. Mm. Did you do you recall if your father ever spoke to you in, in Assyrian or was it English in the house? No, Bobby would do that. never. Never. No, the, the only uh, time was if he was making a joke or a cuss word or something, but uh, n there was no conversation. Mm. At all, you see that I, you know that's what I don't understand, because the same happened to me. We never, when we talked to my mom and dad about something serious, it was never in Assyrian. It was always in English. Hmm. Do you wish that it was in Assyrian? I wish that I, if my mom hadn't put the kibosh on it, I would be a lot more Assyrian than I am. A lot more. Yeah, how did your Assyrian identity show up for you growing well, up? Well, my Assyrian identity, I I have some stories. I wrote a, a, a story when I was in first grade. and Did you, by the way, did you know yourselves to be Assyrian? Yeah, like if someone yeah, were to yeah, ask? Yeah, okay. Yeah, and did people in Chicago know what that was no, at that time? No, they always thought we were Arabs. Okay. They thought you're Syrian. Assyrian. No, right. you have to stop and explain yeah. that. Assyrian. Yeah. yeah. I would say you're all... ASS as an assy riot. You got it? But here, the thing is, I wrote this story and then I've still got it. You know, that was in some of that stuff I gave you, or maybe it's still downstairs in the basement. You could see the foreign impact in my English. You could see it. This was first grade, you said? First grade. And uh, I wrote a story about having soldiers that I took down to Montrose Beach and played in the water with, you know. But there was, I didn't sound like an American-American until I was in fourth grade. Mm. So what changed? The exposure to everything English. And then from then on in. And just understand, at age three, I could speak Assyrian fluently. Mm. And I'd forgotten. And I, I also could speak it grammatically correct and that's all gone that's all gone I know the words I know every now and then I'll say you know you know libby means you're nauseated why is your heart involved in nausea you know and there's a lot of Assyrian idioms that are right, yeah, yeah I, I just and I was so proud of my heritage because we were you know 
they, they, they bad-mouthed the Syrians. They said the Syrians were cruel. No, if you paid, if we conquered you and you paid the tithe, we protected you. But if you went against us, we made a terrible, we'd take the guy that did it and we'd skin him alive and we'd put the skin on, 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 on the walls. Then people say, you don't fool around with those people. I want to go back a little bit. You had mentioned to me before the recording that you wish that your mom had continued to speak with you in uh, in no, Syrian after let three. My, let my father teach me uh, what he wanted father. to teach me. Mm-hmm. I didn't care who spoke with me. Mm-hmm. And what what had stopped it? My friends came upstairs and said, "What is he saying? We don't understand him. Mm-hmm. We don't understand him." But I was speaking to them in Assyrian. I didn't know any English. And so in that moment on, yeah, my, my father was, but my mother prevailed. And, and so I think you find interesting. You know, asked what kind of people we had. Here we're on Newport. There's my brother Ralph, and there I am at eight. He's at three, and there's my Swedish buddy, Swedish buddy, Swedish buddy, Swedish buddy. And he is an Assyrian, mm. Clarence. And it's the darkest Assyrian. I said, Ma, why is Clarence? She said, Shopanai. I don't know. I don't know. My grandpa's name is Clarence. Yeah. But look how dark that kid. Yeah. Everybody, we called him Job. We didn't call him Clarence. But look at my brother was scowling then. Super cute. Did you see this? <laughs> People know the Assyrian community in Chicago to be one of the largest ones outside of the Middle East. And it might actually be the largest. And so there's tons of Assyrians here. They've got tons of churches and stores and picnics and parties and all of these associations and everything. Did you have any connections or ties with that growing up? Yeah. Well, no. Every New Year's Eve, we went to Shataputa. Shataputa. Yeah. And that was on on Halsted Street Mm -hmm. and not on Devon where it is now. And we would, oh my God, there was the Horish, there was the Chai, there was the Kada, there was the Lawasha. I mean, that, and you took, it was going to last forever, wasn't it? It was never going to change. Year after year, boy, it changed. Like I said, my dad was one of the young, youngest ones. And so he was pallbearer. I can't tell you how many funerals. But when he died, we had trouble finding pallbearers. They were all dead, gone. Now your father, he was president of the uh, three times. The American the Syrian American Association. Association. Three times. Three times. What are your favorite Assyrian dishes? Papa rice and chorish. Papa rice. The way my mother taught us to make rice. What's papa rice? It's you, the like great, the packaged. No, uh, papa rice. It was my father, Papa. And he, when my mother died, he carried on the tradition. And when we would have food, he'd come over and he'd cook. And his, his, his lamb horse, oh my God. And I, I served it to, to Gary one time and his wife and his kids. And, and they ate it, you know, because a lot of Assyrian food is just off. Hamsa <laughs> yeah, and oh God, sour. And I was always afraid of harissa. Mm, I love harissa. I knew you would. 
I, I tried to explain to them what it was, oh. but you're drinking butter and coriander on top of this. Oh, see, I don't have it with butter. I have the healthy version of it. Mm. I, well, you know, what, you know what Papa used to have to do? He'd tell the neighbors down below, he says, it's uh, Christmas Eve, he says, please, can I, I'll, I'll be in the bathroom. And he'd take that chicken and pound it and pulverize that thing, and that would come into it. But my other favorite food was horsh, lamb horsh. Lamb horsh. The rice, what you did was you cook. oh, Iranian, you've never eaten Iranian rice. There never was greater rice. It smelled good, it tasted good. It, we used to buy 50 pound bags. And, basmati rice. And, yeah, not basmati, oh, well, Iranian rice. They don't sell it anywhere outside of Iran. And we boycott it for that. And you'd, you'd take it out, you'd have to strain it. You'd, you'd, you'd find uh, bugs growing in it, you'd find pieces mm. of metal. So when we started to get it, first thing we did, we put it in bags and we froze it. So if any bugs were there, they're dead. Mm. But oh my God, what an aroma. So you cooked it up, you boiled it, uh, whatever you did. It was one part rice, two parts water, and you would boil it for 10 to 12 minutes and then you would rinse to get the starch out. And by that time, the whole kitchen would smell, oh my God. And then, when you cooked it, you put a, for every one part of rice, you put a half a stick of butter. So it's just, and then you baked it. Oh God, that, that was food. <laughs> I, love you, I love how he remembers the exact <laughs> ingredients. Well, I, I to took over. It. I started cooking this stuff. Yeah, Gary, how about yourself? I know your mom wasn't Assyrian, but did you all? Did you grow up eating uh, any Assyrian uh, dishes that you can remember? Once in a while. Once in a while. Um, his mother. Actually, his mother. His mother actually used to make horish. Did yeah. she? Oh, okay. Horish. For church. For church. Dolma. Dolma. I don't know if she made dolma, but. I never liked dolma. Yeah. My mother used to. I used to sit there and watch her make dolma kilami. She'd cut those tomatoes open and put stuff in there. And you know, what's the difference between horish and yachni? I don't know. And shirwa. Shirwa and horish are the same thing. Horish, I think, is just in Farsi and and. Um, oh, they are the I, same. They're thing. the same thing. Because I thought they were two different yeah, things. What did you say? Yachni. Yachni. I don't know. What that I is. think yachni is the liquid. Oh, okay. Possibly. Yeah. You but shurwa, so shurwa or shurba, some say shurwa, shurba, and khurush are the same thing. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dr. Georges... Call uh, me what's, Ray, would you? Ray, mean? okay. What's your favorite Assyrian word? Do you have a favorite Assyrian word? What's something the, you love to say? Or something that you love uh, when I, someone else I, says? I like besmaganach. <laughs> or besmaganach. You know, you got to know uchenach. You know, one's masculine, one's female. Yeah. Basmaganach for male, basmaganach. Good job. Yeah, yeah. You were talking about Aiba, Aiba culture. So what was that like growing up? (laughs) Well, I never thought things were Aiba. Did you ever find instances where you were out and about and you couldn't do certain things? I know on our episode that we were interviewing the two ladies from uh, Flint, Michigan, Again, I think because they were women, it was a little bit different. But there were certain things that they couldn't do at that time because it was IPA. They couldn't go out with a guy by themselves. Oh, yeah. Was it the same thing with you in terms of going it out was, with a girl or it, not it, so It much? was for my mother. But by the time we got to Gracie and Dorothy in World War II, 
that it was gone. Mm -hmm. Because that's, Gracie was picked up by her husband. Mm -hmm. That's, that's how she, that's how she, I don't know how, how Dorothy, Dorothy met when she went, and that was the other thing. Yeah, Dorothy. Dorothy went to California. No Assyrian girl ever went off on her own. Well, how she, did that happen? She just wanted to spread her wings. And she, she roomed with another girl. She didn't move in with a guy. And she met Michael there. They, yeah. they fell in love and they got married. But yeah, that, she, I think she told me that. And I'm like, Aunt Dot, you did that? Yeah. You know, at that time? Yeah. It's just, yeah, I wanted to go see the world, travel. And yeah. I just wanted, just picked up and went out west. Do you have any regrets? Yeah, that I didn't learn to read, write, and speak Assyrian like I should. Yes, that's a big regret. As far as my mom and dad are concerned, they could never have been more perfect with all their imperfections. Knowing all that you know now, if you could go back in time, would you have done anything Instantly. differently? Instantly, no. I would go back because if changing it means I wouldn't be married to Pam, I wouldn't have Joe and Elise, no, I wouldn't change anything. My mom and dad, and I mean, my mother didn't have two sons. She had three. The other one was my father. My dad, you can ask him. He was a character. My dad, my father would play 500 rummy with us, with Ralph. And, and this went on every night. And, you, you know, you get dealt seven cards. And we're playing. And all of a sudden, we look at Papa's hands, and he's got cards all over the place. You know, when he was drawing, he wasn't drawing one. He was drawing four or five. He wanted, he wanted to cheat and he wanted to get caught. And when he got caught, we jumped him. And when we jumped him, the neighbors downstairs for that, preserve my mother, would go to the dining room door, open the door and get the strap, beat my father, beat me, and beat my brother. And we'd laugh. We loved it. I mean, we had so darn much fun and we had so little, but we were so rich. You know, I only had one pair of shoes. I went to Northwestern University, North Campus. I had two pairs of pants. One of them was gabardine, shiny seat, you know? I mean, we were poor. We didn't have any money. If I didn't have a scholarship, I never would have gotten through. So it just, they were perfect. The story of stories. My rich, rich friend from Northwestern, and he's, his father and uncle were two of the biggest corporate attorneys in the city of Chicago. They lived on Lakeshore Drive. They lived in the 3500. I used to deliver newspapers to that thing. And when I would go up this, I would go up the elevator, I would take, roll my paper and slam it against the door, pretend I was throwing grenades. And the maids loved it because they knew the paper was here. See, they never yelled at me for that. They liked it. They liked to know it was that time. Well, I bumped into Neil at Northwestern at lunchtime. Now, North, he, could, he could live on campus, but he would come home. A lot of times, and I get I get teared up on this story. Uh, Neil and I got to know each other. I mean, he's an English major, and I'm a chem, I'm a chem major, and everybody else around me, you know, we're all going into medicine and stuff. But it was music, and so we got talking to music about music, and I love classical music. I mean, next to people, music's the most important thing in my life, and so Neil and I got talking one time, and. He said, I, he said, who do you like? I said, I, I said, right now I love Prokofiev. I said, this, the 20th century, the Russians have got it. They, I said, 
Bach was great for his time, but I get bored with his music. I said, I'd never replace Mozart the next gen, the next century, and nobody could touch Beethoven, but nobody can touch Shostakovich and Prokofiev. And so that's my opinion. So anyhow, I said, oh. I said, who do you like? Wagner. I said, what in the hell is the matter with you? What do you mean? How can you like Wagner? You're a Jew. Yeah. He's a Nazi. Oh, he is? I said, yes, he was a Nazi. He believed in the superior race. Oh. And he said, I said, oh, too bad. He said, well, I'll tell you what. I'll, sh I'll tell you what I like. He says, I'll come, in, I'll come in the city and I'll come to your house and you can play your Prokofiev. And I, I had the Sixth Symphony then. It was just American premiere was uh, on WBBM from the New York Philharmonic. I, ha I had a recording. And uh, and uh, we lived on right by, well, you know where Wrigley Field is. You know where the L tracks are. Mm -hmm. We lived in the apartment building half a block down facing the L tracks. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was not ritzy, ritzy neighborhood. So, but we had an AM, FM, phonograph, TV, all in one thing, you know, because with poor people, that's what they did. And it was a zenith. So he's come over to my house. Well, my mother always shopped on Saturday, so she was gone. And my dad, God knows where he was, he was gone. So we sat down and I lied down. I, I always put my head next to the speaker in those days and I cranked that baby up and, and it went, you know, it's about 30 minutes long and we got done I said, isn't that the greatest thing yet? He said, yeah, that's pretty good. All of a sudden, we heard a key go in the door. We were up on the third floor. In walks my dad. Oh, you know, <laughs> what are you doing? I says, oh, I said, uh, this is my, my friend Neil. Oh, he says, hello, Neil. And he grabs Neil's hand and tries to break it. That was my dad with a heavy handshake. Then he grabs me and he hugs me and he kisses me. And then he hugs Neil, and I'm thinking, oh my God. So he says, what are you doing? What are you? I said, well, we're listening to music. We're going to go to Neil's house. We're going to listen to music at his house. Okay. So he says, all right. So he goes, hey, let, let, let me make lunch for you guys. I said, no, Dad, we're not going to stay and have lunch. He said, no, let me, let me feed you guys. No, Dad, we're going to go. Well, okay, if you have to go, okay. So we're ready to part, of course. Neil had to have his hand crushed again. He even got hugged. I got hugged and kissed. We go down the stairs, we walk down Waveland, turn on Lakeshore Drive, go into, Neil says, I always go on the elevator in the back. I said, he's delivering newspapers in the back. I said, that's great. We go upstairs, I don't know, 10th floor or something, it's 3,500, and he had a key. He had his own key to the, well, I had my key too, but you know, back door, and there's the, Black maid. Why, Master Master Neil, is this your friend? I yeah. Can I make you boys something to eat? No, 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 no. We're just here. He says, We're here to listen to music. Okay. So I looked, the kitchen was about as the only thing we had big in our house was our kitchen. And it was a little bit bigger than ours, and then it had cabinets. Whoa, I'd never seen that before. <laughs> Walked into the dining room, and I'm telling you, I sat up to my butt. I stepped down on carpet, was so plush, I thought, what the heck? I looked at the dining and then I looked to the left, and there's my lake! I could see the lake and the Belmont Harbor below. They had enough furniture in their two rooms to open a furniture store. 
I swear, I couldn't believe it. So I, Neil said, well, my bedroom's over this way. My bedroom, I slept with my brother. Walked over, walked in her, and said, he's got enough furniture in here for our whole house. He had his own telephone. We only had one phone, it was for the whole family. He had his own hi-fi set, separate. He had his own TV set, separate. He had, I mean, he had everything. I mean, then I realized, these people are rich and I'm poor. I mean, my God, is this what it's like? And so I said, well, okay, let's listen to Wagner. And Neil says, Ray, I, I don't want to listen to Wagner. I said, oh, okay, what do you want to do? He says, I'll walk you halfway back to home, to your house. Okay. And down we go, down the back, we go out, go down. And as we're approaching Broadway, we're about from here to the house over there. He stopped me. And he said, can I ask you something? I said, what? He said, can I make a business deal with you? A what? A business deal? What are you talking about? He says, it's about your father. I went, oh, oh, okay, I'm embarrassed, you know. I said, no, no, me, I'm not, I, I'm sorry. No, no, I want to know if I can trade my family for your dad. Aww. He hadn't met my mother. What would he have done then? Can I trade my family for your dad? He was an only child. His parents weren't home. They're rich, rich as can be. They had everything except they didn't have my dad. See, that's what Assyrians are like. That's you were rich in another way. I was so damn rich. I realized I was richer than Neil. I had more than he did. You usually always like to end it with, we have listeners from all over the world. If you had one thing to say to them, what would that be? Well, you first, I gotta think. Oh, okay, me first. One thing to tell everybody. Well, getting back to what you said as far as what you had asked as far as any regrets uh, or doing anything over, I think, uh, Paying more attention to the roots, uh, I would love to be able to speak with my grandparents again, and uh, uh, and parents, uh, and find out more of uh, what they went through and uh, the family history, uh, and uh, preserve the mother tongue. Your turn. Well, mine's a little different. Mine is, my, my most important thing that I can think of is, is for people to appreciate and understand and adhere to God's greatest gift. And God's greatest gift to the universe was love. And if people loved everybody, everybody loved everybody, there'd be no armies, there'd be no police, there'd be no crime, there'd be no dope addiction. The world might be boring, because one of my assistants once told me, wow, if everyone was like you, it would be a boring world. I said, yeah, but you wouldn't have to put a lock on your door. And to me, love is everything. And it's so much easier to love than to hate. 
hate is hard work. And I just don't understand why so much of the world hates. So that's, that's my message. Thanks for tuning in. I really hope you enjoyed listening. Make sure you subscribe from whichever device you're listening to never miss an episode. See you next week.